Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Guguletu Mplungu. As a writer, broadcaster, and editor, Gugu is a respected voice in South Africa's media space. In her role as contributing editor for Global Citizen, she's helping to advance the organization's vision of ending extreme poverty by 2030. And as editor-in-chief of Careers magazine, she's driving the narrative around young people's welfare. Gugu is a media maverick, working in print, radio, and on television. In April 2015, she was identified by Marie Claire as one of the women to watch in recognition of her use of various media platforms to nudge South African discourse towards substantive and thorough journalism, something that I think we can all agree in this world of fake news we really need. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Media Studies and Anthropology from Rhodes University and a postgrad diploma in Media Management. Gugu is also a writer. Her personal accolades include a National Arts Festival, Business Arts Essay Silver Award for Feature Writing, and a Media 24 Legends Columnist of the Year Award. She was a contributor to Ferial Hafiji's collection, What If There Were No Whites in South Africa? And I was very excited and lucky to publish her essay, Feminism Changed My Life, in the Feminism Is collection in 2018. In that essay, she says... I love the idea of the shattering of the glass ceiling being the sum of all of the women who have tried and not just the women who finally break through it. It's a beautiful image of what it takes for things to change and makes us think of other women's access as an inheritance that's passed down from one group to another. Luckily, Gugu's interest in ceiling shatterers now benefits us all with the publication of her book, You Have Struck a Rock, Women Fighting for Their Power in South Africa, which came out this year from Quella. The book chronicles the very many areas of progress that women in South Africa have led and and reminds us of the many more steps we need to take to reach for equality. So today I'll be talking to Gugu about women's power, the importance of acknowledging those on whose shoulders we stand, and what she sees as important ceilings that still need to be shattered. Welcome Gugu. Thanks Jen, it's such a pleasure to be chatting to you. If you don't mind, I'd like us to start with your essay in Feminism Is, which is called Feminism Changed My Life. It begins with you describing how you were the first in your family to go to university and the feeling you had like you were shattering the glass ceiling for your family, but then realizing once you were there that your grandmother and your mother had already done some of the work for you. And you say, they had weakened the ceiling for me in seemingly small, inconsequential ways that, when considered cumulatively, ensured I was standing in the right place at the right time, able to run towards that glass sheet of race, gender, class, and survive the impact, even though at times it honestly felt like I was drowning, not swimming. So I think this is such a beautiful tribute to your family members and to all of the women who've come before. Tell me more about what you meant here and why it was important for you to say. I think for many of us, when we um, are the first to do anything, um, yes, I think on an individual personal level, it's incredibly affirming and important to realize that you have done something. So 
you know, for many of my generation, the kids who were almost the born freeze, because I was born in the late 80s. For many of us, we were the first to go to Model C schools, attend private schools, and or have the opportunity to go to university, which in and of itself on an individual level is incredibly important. But a thing I've been thinking about a lot, which I think at the time of the book was a thought that was at the very beginning was how much of what we are able to do is because of the sum of the work of other people. So this idea that we are in community, we do not exist in isolation. So me going to Rhodes University at 17, yes, I was you know, a diligent and hardworking student. I got the distinctions, I got the bursary, but there was something else that made my individual efforts um, lead to that moment where, you know, I was a geo six at Rhodes University. And when I thought about it, it had everything to do with the seemingly small choices that my mother and my grandmother had made. So my grand's big thing as a single parent was to ensure that my mother stayed in school. And we know that the level of education that a mother receives has a direct impact, has a direct correlation with the level of education for their children. So my grand, 30, 40 years before I was born, um, making a decision to ensure that my mother stayed in school was an investment that perhaps I don't even think she was aware of. So it benefited my mom and then that benefited me. And so when I thought about it, yes, it was great that I'd gone to Rhodes, but I really had to thank the decisions that had been made by my grandmother and my mother. And this idea of community, the work of women we know and don't know, and how in many ways we build on it. Very seldom are we starting from scratch, even though I think for many of us, it does feel that way. And so part of that essay was really trying to think about how do we acknowledge that work? How do we acknowledge those efforts? So my grand never finished school. I think my grand dropped out in the early stages of her education. My grand, one of the most interesting things I've watched in my life is my grand teach herself how to read. Um, but then, you know, my mom making it better for, my grand making it better for my mom, my mom insisting I finish school and go to varsity. And so there is this idea of, you know, an inheritance almost, even if you don't think about it that way. Um, and we know statistically an investment in young women, in girls, has a direct impact on communities. I was reading a statistic recently about how I think it's about 80% of women's income goes directly towards children's welfare. I think men account for just under half of that. So you know, my grand investing in my mother was an investment in a granddaughter she didn't even have or even know about at the time. And I think that's so important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing what what can happen in just a generation, you know, how much change can happen. And then you say in your piece that though you were grateful for the work of your mother and grandmother, that that gratitude and that pride in both of them was accompanied by anger and sometimes despair. And I think it was really important that in your piece that you pushed back against the celebration of motherhood as martyrdom or as some sort of heartwarming feeling that people might get thinking about how far you've come thanks to them, when in fact they lost out because of systematic problems and, and structure 
structures that limited their progress. And mm. um, what do you think the risk is of celebrating the woman as Marty, you know, the wife who gives, well, the mother who gives 80% of her income to her kids is, you know, what, what are we, what is the risk of celebrating that at the expense of celebrating women who don't give, who don't have children or who don't do things like that? I think, and you see it, especially in the discourse in South Africa, the idea that women are somehow superhuman or particularly biologically, culturally, socially able to endure more pain. Um, I think a lot of that informs the ways in which we treat vulnerable groups, be they women, queer people, poor people, the idea that some people in the world have a greater tolerance or capacity for pain for me or hardship or struggle is I think one of the ways in which we justify or we become or we rationalize the the reality that some people do exist in horrible circumstances. In this country there is the intersection of race, class, gender and so poor black women are at you know the very the coalface of all of the country's oppressions. And very often, though, we speak about women as being, you know, powerful and strong. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with, so we need to find a way to discuss the the various kinds of violence and hardship women endure without having a conversation about, but why should, you know, people have to be strong? Why do some groups, why do some of us have to be enduring? Why do some of us have to accept that life will be difficult in a way that isn't for others. And so I think there is a way in which we can acknowledge and name the contribution of women, which I think is important and we must be deliberate, but without making it seem as if women are particularly able to endure some of the hardship. Um, You know, there's a saying about how you know, mothers um, hold the knife on the side that is sharpest. Um, And while it's a beautiful image, this idea that a mother will do whatever a mother needs to do for their loved ones, I also often think, but why do women have to hold the knife on the edge that is sharpest? And that knife could represent anything. I think gender-based violence, I think gender, um, you know, a lack of equal pay, Um, a lack of access to, you know, some of their socioeconomic rights. There is a question about, so what does that knife represent? And so part of me thinks, well, I'm grateful that women have, in spite of, I think, the odds against them, have been able to do great things. I do also think we must ask the question, but why? Why is it such a big deal, for instance, that my mother, as an example, was able to finish school Um, that mothers tell their children or girl children, you know, how to navigate a world that wants to harm them, Um, that we talk about the terrible things we have survived. You know, when I think of, um, you know, being older and having survived different kinds of violence in my life and getting to varsity and learning that there were so many of us. I attended the silent march as a youngin at Rhodes And there were just so many of us, you know, in that march and survivor t-shirts. And it broke my heart because I thought, yes, we are here. We will not be silenced. But 
what is it about the society that, that makes it so we must, you know, refuse to be silenced, that we must say we're going to make it in spite of the odds. And so, yeah, I think there's a delicate balance. There's a way in which I think to acknowledge women, but without this idea that we are able to endure pain and hardship, because I think that in many ways sets us up for, oh, well, you know, if you are strong, if you're able to endure, then then it's fine. We don't have to imagine a radically different society where women are safe, where women are free, where women have physical autonomy, where you can choose what to wear, when to wear it, to walk at night if you so please, if you don't have to, you know, where you don't have to live your life through the prism of fear or live your life through the prism of not being harmed. Um, And I don't know that South Africa is there yet. I mean, especially now during Women's Month, so much around Women's Month is about how strong women are and not enough about why women must be strong. Yeah, I think it's a point about it's incredible what women can achieve despite the hardship. But then people really ask, like you do in your piece, well, imagine what they could have done if they didn't have to deal with all this extra shit. Like imagine what we could have done if we were just living our lives as, you know, as freely as a man. I'm not saying in in South Africa that all men are free. We know that we are one of the most unequal countries in the world and that the labor system is, you know, messed up for everyone. But Mm -hmm. as you say, women are the most likely to suffer the consequences of those inequities because Mm -hmm. of their, because of the celebration of women's strength and resilience and things like that. Um, And in your piece, you you sort of touch on this in like a lighthearted way. And you say, you speak about your brother and how if there was one thing you'd like him, and I suppose that we'd like all men to realize is that they're not particularly special. Tell me about this idea. Yeah, so, you know, I think of my brother, and I adore my brother. There's 10 years between us. And part of what, you know, I watched my brother have a full childhood, which I think very few girls and women um, have the opportunity. Um, For many of us, we begin to, A, either be socialized into or thought of as older from when we are young. If you speak to women um, for many of us, our first experience of any kind of violence, especially gender-based violence, is from, you know, when our age is in single digits. Um, they, I do think there is often an expectation of very different kinds of labor on girl children versus boy children. But also at the same time, I think, you know, girls are taught this idea that we must struggle, we must work, it will be hard, whereas boys... Uh, in you know in, in almost in complete opposite are are told have a world that is built around them um girls spend their entire lives whether you are interested in boys or not being groomed for men um you know we prepare for heterosexuality whether or not you are you know heterosexual and i think it's so interesting that you know i look at my brother and he's amazing and he did great things and he finished school and part of what allowed my brother to A, be a child, but also to you know go to a good school, become a great basketball player, think about what he wanted to study, had everything to do with the decisions that his mother and his grandmother had made. And so while I have no doubt that my brother is a beautiful child and you know he's a wonderful person, the choices that the women in his life had made had made it so, again, 
he was able to step into certain things. Even though many of us live lives that aren't perfect or that have, there is violence, there is oppression, there is inequality, there are ways in which we are privileged. So much of our lives are so fundamentally different to what the average South African lives like. Yeah. I often think about privilege as the opportunity to fail. Like you, the more privileged you are, the more opportunities you have to fail without it since like, you know, significantly affecting your life. So if you come from a, a privileged background, um, if, for example, you weren't the bright, curious child, which I'm sure that you were, people would still have supported you because there's an assumption that you're capable as well. Like privilege becomes linked to people's perception of your capability. And from this foundation of family fem- feminism, you've turned your interest to the feminists and womanists who shaped South Africa in your new incredible book, You Have Struck a Rock. When did you get the idea to write about how history has shaped the conditions that women face today? And tell us a little bit about what the book covers. So I think I've been working in journalism for almost half my life now. And the more time I spent in media, the more I realized um, in many ways we were getting, and still not perfect, but we were trying to figure out how to get questions around race and class right. So what does it mean to be black and poor in contemporary South Africa? What does How does race continue to impact on people's opportunity, whether or not, um, you know, how does race almost determine your trajectory? But I wasn't getting the sense that we're doing the same with gender. The more time I spent in newsrooms, the more I felt we just weren't getting it right. And so throughout my time in media, I thought there must be a way in which we can we can do this. There must be a way in which we are able to talk about gender issues, especially for me as a Black woman. I found it quite frustrating that Black men were very able to articulate issues around race and class and how race remains very important in a, in a democratic society. But the minute you try to say, okay, in the same way that race and class remain important, gender does in the same way. Suddenly, you know, it was too complicated. It didn't make sense. And I'd been thinking about, so how do we do this? And then I wrote a piece for the Mail and Guardian on the Federation of South African Women because I was curious. They, I, I thought they must be more to the march, to the union buildings. Who were these women? What were they thinking about? What were they writing about? And so, you know, that piece, when I wrote for the Mail and Guardian, I said, we must learn about the Federation of South African Women because they did more than just march to the union buildings. They had a charter that demanded equality. This is 65 years ago. Um, Grand Apartheid is about a few years old. And here's a group of women from across the country, black, white, colored, and Indian, rich and poor, saying we demand equality. We demand equal pay for equal work. We demand that women be able to have the same legal rights as men. We demand that women be able to own land and housing, which they couldn't. And I thought, this is so important. 65 years ago, at the height of apartheid, women were thinking about, if we're going to think about a free society, we must think about women. And so from that piece, I really started seriously thinking about the book. Around the same time, there was the essay for Feminism Is. So I was really thinking about, so what is 
if we were to think about what gender means in South Africa, how it remains important, what does that mean? In what ways can we tell that story? In what ways can we, what are some of the stories of women in the country that we can capture? And then finally, last year, I completed the book, submitted the manuscript, and a few months later, here we are. Congratulations. I know from first-hand experience that you can write and write and write, but having the, you know, finally deciding that it's finished is a huge thing <laughs> and sending it off and getting published is incredible. Um, I just, I, I'm thinking about what you said in terms of the gender transformation of the newsroom and, and what that means. And I looked for a report that I'm busy working on at the State of the Newsroom report from last year or this year last year's one Um, and that report found that just 33 percent of the country's main newspapers are edited by women and women make up just 28 percent of board members of major media houses Mm -hmm. women make up just a third of the full-time journalism employees of the 522 companies surveyed Um, and there's a huge gender pay gap as well women earned on average 23 percent less than men in 2018 which is a worse figure than in 2009 (laughs) And then on top of that, women in the newsroom have to face the intense digital harassment when they're covering issues that are difficult to cover, which might explain, you know, people's self-selection into the culture or the features type of stuff, because you think, at least I'm not going to get psychos telling people to rape me on a WhatsApp group if I say something controversial. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, it's important what you say there about being the thorn in the side of people's comfort with... um, normalizing insults of women and being that difficult figure in the newsroom to to get those questions asked and but I wonder for you what advice would you give to a woman starting out in journalism today you know um, again not to celebrate women as having to be super strong to get anywhere I do think um, it's quite important to cause cause trouble and even what was interesting with radio there was a time where it looked as if radio was making the right strides. We had more women on primetime slots, so the slots where the money is made, where the greatest number of listeners are. And then suddenly, a couple of years ago, it seemed we were regressing. I mean, even right now, you have major stations that have, out of a 24-hour programming lineup, have two, at most, maybe three women. Very few of them are in the drive-time slots. Um, women traditionally were either sidekick to the men on prime time, so on breakfast radio, or afternoon drives, or women would be put in sort of the lighter slots, which are very often mid-morning and afternoon. And even the content of those slots isn't the same as what the drive time slots are discussing. You could listen to any station, be it public broadcast, commercial, community and for the most part the voices of women as presenters were were missing even more so the voices of women as sources were missing so if you were listening to any kind of programming and there was an expert you would be listening to a man so not only did you have male presenters male sources what then also started happening because of that is the profile of radio listeners, especially talk radio listeners, was male. And so all you were hearing in a country with 51% women was men. And it's difficult. It's hard to be the person that says, okay, why have we only heard the voices of men 
for eight hours, six hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, and what are we going to do about it? But I do think in many ways, newsrooms have become complacent. I think not enough of us, and again, it's hard being this person, but I do think more of us just need to cause trouble. I do often say to women in the industry, if it feels off, chances are it is. And you must be able, or if you want to, you must be able to say, I don't think what's happening here is okay. I think it has a lot to do with the stats you were just sharing. The reality is that our newsrooms are untransformed. That's newspaper, TV, radio. We've made some progress, but I think in some instances we've regressed and not enough of us are going, hang on, this is not, this is not great. This is not sustainable. And what do we do? What do we do about it? They just, it's unacceptable that I can count on one hand. Um, editors, drive time presenters who are women in 2021. It's pretty ridiculous. It's shameful. Yeah, I mean, there's an incredible, I'm sure you're aware of it, um, an NPO called Quote This Woman, um, which allows uh, women to register as experts in their field so that journalists can access that database when they're looking for sources because their research shows that less than 20% of sources quoted in the news are women. So aside from who's hosting the show, who's asking the questions, the people that they ask to comment on stuff are mostly men and um, so people who haven't seen that website you can go to quote thiswoman.org.za and have a look at the database and register on the database if you're an expert in your field so that we try and transform our sources as well as our news and um, but I don't want to get sidetracked on this issue and I want to talk about your book <laughs> so, it's, uh, as someone who works with statistics around gender equality all the time it was really great for me to read your book and be steeped in these statistics not just as numbers but as a story or the tale end of a story that was started many years ago and you say in the book the acknowledgement of history and the role of women and girls in it are vital not only for measuring a society's progress but also in highlighting and celebrating certain parts of history that we cannot and do not speak about enough which I think is so true so how did you decide from I mean our intensely complex and upsetting history and contemporary reality, how did you decide which parts to cover? And are there any topics that you wish you could have covered or will cover in a future book? I tried to pick things that gave us insight into some of the complexities, the nuances, um, the experiences I think we don't speak enough about in the hopes that when we think about unemployment, we'll think about young women. When we think about um you know, protection of workers' rights. We think about, so what does that mean if you're a domestic worker? Um, when we think about policing and, and safety, community safety, we'll think about sex workers. When we talk about land, we think about, okay, what does land reform mean for women and girls? Because I, I thought those were all things we just weren't, weren't asking enough of those questions, if at all we were asking them this is my job. I write about these type of things all the time. You know, I have all this, this research, but to try and think like, oh, of all of the stuff that I know is wrong about gender equality, what would I cover? I just thought it was incredible how you made that selection and managed to weave it together so well so that it didn't feel like too much of a, you know, a stats dump or a story dump or a, oh my gosh, this is terrible, you know, collection. It felt like 
wow, there's a lot going on and we have so many women to thank. And so many of them, we don't know who they are. And like, thank goodness for them. And thank goodness for the women who are still doing this work um, today. I, w- I wonder though, for you, you know, you obviously had an idea too when you started out of, of these issues that you thought were important to cover. But what was the most surprising thing that you found in writing the book? And what sort of new ideas did you encounter in the research and the writing? I think a thing that surprised me was the extent of, some of the challenges. So an example is the chapter in which I write about sexual violence and whether or not we've done, we've had any progress towards dealing with um, sexual violence and gender-based violence in the country. I particularly chose the one in nine campaign because I distinctly remember being a young university student um, just coming out of high school and the formation of the one in nine campaign and how shocking that statistic was that one in nine um, people who are raped will go on to report the rape. And that, in fact, what we know about sexual violence in the country is quite literally the tip of the iceberg. And I was really interested to know, um, since the formation of the one in nine campaign, have we made any progress? And I reached out to the one in nine campaign themselves I went back to the research because that number came from a South African Medical Research Council study. I think it was in the early 2000s. I went back to the authors of that paper and I said, do you have any, have you done any follow-up work since that research? And it was shocking to just see how bad things were. Um, Numbumelelo at one in nine, who's the coordinator, said to me, we believe that the number is no longer one in nine, it's one in 25. And when I got research from the SA Medical Research Council, they did quite a substantive study looking at Gauteng, which they said gave us a great indication of the state of um, how we were doing with dealing with sexual violence. The number was one in 25. And that was shocking to me. Things I thought you know, you you work in the space, you read the research. I thought things were bad. Upon spending a lot more time with the research, with people who are doing the work, it was just disappointing and disheartening to see how some of it was just worse. You know, for many of us, we spend a lot of time on the internet. We are connected with other people around the world. And we think about the state of the world. It's very easy to feel awful and despondent and sad and just overwhelmed. And I think speaking to people doing the work is so important just to remind you that you are not alone in the thing you were thinking about. You are not alone in this quest for freedom. Yeah, I think I know exactly what you mean in terms of feeling hopeless and then at the same time amazed and inspired by the people doing the work. Um, I think we're really, really lucky that there are so many people committed and working at this stuff every single day. Um, because we would be a lot worse off without them. So, yeah, shout out to the contemporary activists (laughs) for doing the work. Um, And for you, what's next in terms of your writing and your career? Um, You know, writing this book, there were so many things that I didn't get to. There were so many ideas as I was writing that I thought I would like to return to. So in examining, for instance, the life of Mewini Juare and the Black Consciousness Convention, I thought about, for many of us, especially young Black people, thinking about this idea of freedom. 
um, the work of BC has become more relevant for us. And so what does that mean? What does Black consciousness mean in 2021? What can we glean? Um, I refer to the famous quote by Audre Lorde that um, there are no, we do not live single issue lives, which actually speaks about what um, Malcolm X learned later on in his life. And I'm quite interested to go back to some of the work that's been done to use that as signposts. So, you know, re-looking at the Federation of South African Women and learning that one of their demands was equality. As a young woman in 2021, that was great for me. And I'd like to go back and tell more of the stories of women in history that I feel we don't talk enough about. I do think there's an experience of women in exile that we know a little bit about that I'd like to investigate. Um, I think what Black consciousness means is also quite important. I'm also quite interested in the idea of the history of this country and queer history. I make this point, I think it's in the chapter on the One in Nine campaign on sexual violence, that it is quite an important part of this history, the contribution of queer people towards our freedom. A person I'd hope to speak to for the book, it just didn't happen because of time and scheduling conflicts, is Dr. Beverly Dietze. She, of course, was one of the organizers of the first Pride March on the African continent. And I wanted to speak to her because I think it's so important because at the time in the early 90s, when the march was being organized, she was saying, we cannot have an LGBTQ movement without talking about the reality of poor Black lesbians. She insisted that if the movement was to be um, substantive and intersectional, that we have to talk about women, um, queer women. And I think that's so important for this country and our history to tell that story. Um, I refer, I spend quite a bit of time in the book referring to it, but I think it deserves its own in the same way I've done here, I think it deserves its own time. So there are a number of things I'd like to go back to um, that either came from the book or that I started thinking about about or started thinking about as I was writing. So we can basically expect a book a year for like the next two decades, three decades. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like we've got a lot going going on. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But I think we'll all benefit from those books as everybody benefits from all books about people whose stories have been silenced or deliberately not told. Um, yeah. And so some of the questions that I ask for all of our podcast guests at the end are, um, do you have a book or books that has inspired your feminism? I think I've been revisiting All About Love. Um, by Bell Hooks, um, and I remembered how incredible that book was for me, um, and it feels as if I'm almost meeting it for the first time. I also revisited um, Professor Pumla Dineo-Bola's Rape, a South African Nightmare. I think Bell Hooks's Feminism is for Everyone is also remains quite an important book as well. There's also a book called The Rape of Nanking, which I read as a first year at Rhodes. And it talks about the occupation of the Japanese, the Chinese city of Nanking. 
and how obviously there was this horror of a military occupation, but how so much of what had happened in Nanking was gendered because of course we know militaries, state violence, which is often expressed in militaries and armies and soldiers is about patriarchal violence. And I couldn't believe, I I must've been 17 or 18 when I read that book and I couldn't put it down. I couldn't believe that this was a thing that happened and that every time there's a military occupation of any kind, this is what you can expect, this horror of gender-based violence, of sexual violence as a tool of war. So I think that book as well had an immense impact on all of the thinking that I've had. And so I think those, if I think about it, those would be the books that have been, I mean, they've been, I think many, but those I think stand out as having quite a profound impact on my thinking, on my politics, on my worldview. Do you have any quotes that inspire you or that you live by? Random, well, not randomly. So a year ago, I was finishing a book and it was my birthday because I'm an August baby and that was uh, writing time. And um, I got a, a plant from one of my friends that said, everything that is real was imagined, which initially, and I say this in the book as well, initially that was about the book, that the book will eventually manifest as a thing because I think writing is such a lonely process. Sometimes you think, does this make sense? Does anyone want to read this? Does anyone care? Because it's just you and the words and the research and you're just, you know, it's a deeply lonely process. And I kept thinking about that little quote on my little succulent. But then it became about everything else. It became about, when I think about everything that, has allowed me to be in the place that I that I am. Um, women being able to vote, black people being able to vote, um, democracy, um, the right to, you know, freedom of association, freedom, all of those things were imagined at some point. Um, going back to this women's charter from 65 years ago, women and the height of apartheid where women couldn't even be adults, saying we demand equality. And so there are lots of quotes throughout my life that I've thought about, but in the last year, that's really been the guiding light for me, Um, that this idea of freedom, of living a full life, of not being fearful, of not being, um, you know, this constant worry that I think so many of us live with, especially in South Africa, that it can be different. Do you have any other advice for feminists on their journeys? I think especially for South African feminists, even though it may not seem, if you were just to look at public discourse, um, it may not seem that there is a history of feminism in this country. Very often, especially for young Black women, we're told that we are Black first before we are anything else, um, that race first, um, as especially as we demand that, you know, we must enjoy all of our freedoms at the same time. I think it is important to know that there is a long history of activism in, in, in history. You come from a long line of women demanding equality, demanding, you know, freedom, um, and that this is not a new thing. I think that's so important for so many of us. I think it's also quite important that we are not alone. There is a sense, it's just, I think it's a Baldwin quote where he says, 
you know, you believe that what you are suffering is so unique to you until you read. And I think for young women, there is sometimes a sense that what we are experiencing is unique to us and we are alone, but we are not. The struggle is, the fight is older than us, it is global, and we are, even though it doesn't feel like it, there are many of us doing this. You are not alone because I think it it does get, it can get very lonely. And I think those two things are important for any, I guess, even older feminist. And speak to your elders. I think one of the great joys of this book was being able to speak to some of my elders. Your elders are important. They are an immense resource. Whoever they are, find them, speak to them, engage with them. Um, I think it is important for all for all of the reasons I've mentioned to also just seek out the people who've done the work before us and figure out how we can use their work and their lives. Like Audrey Lord says, we can use them as signposts. We can use them to guide us. Well, thank you, Gugu, for doing the work and for making it easier for many of us to find our feminist elders and to thank them for the work that they've done i hope everybody goes out to buy your book right now but thank you very much for coming on today i appreciate your time and everything that you've said thank you very much thank you so much jen this has been such a pleasure chatting to you and i think you know when i think about people who've done work that i often look at and reference that i think is important i think your work is incredibly important um so you know this has been a great pleasure oh, um, to you as someone whose work i admire and i think is incredibly important well thank you very much thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves